So you turn to Genesis 32. I add my word of greeting that you've already heard to those you've already heard in Jesus' name. Happy birthday. I happen to be here in your first service on March 1st, 2020. Not sure exactly why I was here. Not exactly why I timed your preacher, but he preached for 52 minutes. I'll come in under that today, I promise you. It was my daughter's birthday. That's one reason I remember it. March 1st, 2020. She's sitting right there. So she came back again. She, she comes every four years. So, uh, and uh, you made great strides. That's obvious. That's obvious. And I'm grateful to the Lord for you. I celebrate with you what God has done in your midst. Now, I'm going to give you a fairly long preamble before I read from Genesis 32. This is um, a text that does not yield its meaning easily. Uh, it's a very unusual text in that I would claim that it's easier to discover the practical application of this text than it is to discover exactly what the text means. The, the, the application is really pretty obvious. The meaning um, is something that we're not inclined to be dogmatic about. We don't necessarily think, you know, we've really seen exactly what this text means. Uh, I, I hesitate to use the word strange, but it's strange in the sense that it's, it's alien to our experience, our normal Christian experience. I want to be clear about what we're not trying to promote today. We're not trying to promote uh, a mystical experience. We're not, we're not trying to say, you know, you're somehow missing out on the Christian life if, if you've never seen an angel or if you've never heard an angel's voice or if you've never been touched by an angel. That's, that's almost the opposite of what we're trying to do. We are, though, commending the desirability and the possibility and almost the necessity of a personal encounter with God. And that's, that's what we find in Genesis 32. And it's because God was pursuing Jacob that he had a personal encounter encounter with God. I would say that um, the way we come at this and, and the way we would uh, hope, hope for this is by, at a minimum, an encounter, an encounter with God in His Word. There have been Christians who've described these kinds of encounters. Jonathan Edwards talked about something that happened to him when he rode his horse out in the woods on a snowy day. He had an encounter with Christ, a vision of the glory of Christ that, that changed him. Dwight L. Moody described such a, uh, an encounter in his room. He said that the, the presence of God was so obviously a felt thing in that room that he had, to, he had to go like this and ask God if he would please back away lest he be overwhelmed. Uh, I can remember on three different occasions, one quoted in this chapter today and one quoted by um, your presenter in the pastoral prayer today, when I was overwhelmed with the glory of God and the presence of God at Marvin King, I'm starting to tear up right now. Um, in the prayer, it was quoted, O Lord, thou art very great. The first verse of Psalm 104, which is my favorite psalm. It happened to me once when um, I was just reading casually John 10, and I got to that passage that said uh, it was winter. It was, it was the time of the Feast of the Dedication, and uh, Jesus was walking in the temple, 
in the portico of Solomon, and I was overwhelmed by the glory of the incarnation, that on a day in the first century, at a specific latitude and longitude, if you'd been in Jerusalem, you could have actually seen incarnate God with your eyes walking at a time that all people mark called winter, at a time when the Jews mark called the Feast of the Dedication, not only in the temple, but in a certain point in the temple called the Portico of Solomon. I found it, I still find it to be overwhelming that God visited this place at a certain location at a certain time. Then I had a similar experience in the first verse of this chapter where it says simply that as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Undeserving Jacob, recalcitrant Jacob, resistant Jacob. Uh, and we're going to zero in on that encounter. Now i got to do something else. You know, ideally, you're committed to expository preaching here, and that means that you go verse by verse through passages, which means you have a long time to set the context. I parachute in here, and there's so many things we need to know before this happens. There's so many things we know after the text that we don't have time to talk about. But let me just tell you this. If you're hearing this for the first time, uh, it may shock you or mystify you. The one that Jacob is wrestling with is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, the book of Hebrews makes it very clear that Christ is not of the regular order of angels, cherubim, seraphim, archangel. He's not a created being. The angels normally in Scripture are created beings, but the word angel also means simply messenger. And there's one special angel called in Hebrew the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that in the prologue to John's gospel, and by the way, John John 1 is, has more than one reference to Jacob. But in the prologue to John's gospel, the theological prologue that he gives us, I think it's in verse 18, he says, no one has seen God at any time. And you think, what? No one has seen God at any time? Adam and Eve saw God. Um, Moses saw something that made his face shine. In that famous passage in Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So what can that mean? How does that comport with so many other passages of, of Scripture? And... Um, how does it fit together? We know it's not a contradiction. Scripture doesn't, Scripture complements, P-L-E-M-E-N-T itself. It doesn't contradict itself. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Now, let me paraphrase that. No one has seen God at any time except, of course, when they saw Jesus. What does that suggest? Well, it suggests we know for certain, no argument here, that the visible God of the New Testament is God the second person. But what we discover, the, the longer we drill down, is that the visible God of the Old Testament is also the God, is also God the second person. 
And as a matter of fact, in John 12, 41, John tells us that the one that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 was Jesus. So without going through all the, the, the scripture um, evidence, by the way, it's hard to prove this doctrine from one passage, but there's several passages. When you put them all together, uh, Genesis 16, Genesis 32, uh, Judges 13, and other passages, it becomes clearer. It's not unanimous among evangelical scholars, okay, but it's a strong consensus that the Malach Yahweh in the Old Testament is God the second person, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. So we're doing this a little bit backwards, you see. I'm declaring you, instead of unfolding it as, it, as it's revealed to us gradually, uh, because I wasn't here last Sunday and I won't be here next Sunday, I'm just saying uh, I don't have time to develop it. I'm just telling you that's what's happening here. So with that introduction, I just ask you to stand. I think most of you know the story. To stand in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read from uh, verses 24 to verse 31 uh, from Genesis chapter 32. Uh, hear the word of God. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, that is, when the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, this is the man speaking, let me go, or the angel of the Lord speaking, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now those are two clues right there. Who has the authority to change somebody's name? And what's he saying? Let me tell you whom you've just wrestled with. You've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you would ask my name? One of the mysteries in the passage. And he blessed them there, him there. Who has the authority to bless? So Jacob named the place Peniel, and he said, I have seen God. Now, that's a pretty big hint. I have seen God face to face, yet my life has somehow been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Father, we thank you for this word, um, recounting an event that took place many thousands of years ago. And we thank you for its contemporary relevance. We thank you for its sanctifying power. We pray that you'd show us what it means we, show that you, we pray that you'd show us why it matters, and we pray that you would change us because of our encounter with the text, which would lead to an encounter with you, and we ask it in Jesus' powerful name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Jacob's always running. 
and he's always running away. And he's afraid that as he's coming now in a different direction, that his brother is pursuing him with evil intent. He just discovers that, no, it's his God that's pursuing him with uh, a gracious intent. The life of Jacob in its first phase is bookended by running away from Canaan toward his mother's neighborhood in Padan Aram in Genesis 28. And then by running away, in that passage, he's running away from his brother. And then in chapter 32, he's running away from his uncle, who's also his father-in-law. But as he's running away from his father-in-law, he's afraid that he's going to run into the sword of his brother, that he's jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. And as he runs in both directions, the Lord meets him. The Lord meets him in chapter 28 in a vision, a vision of angels. I tell you that, the, that uh, John 1 was replete. I know you've been studying John. That John 1 is replete with references to, with, well, I'll say more than one reference to Jacob. When Nathaniel walks up to Jesus, you remember what Jesus said? He said, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. Now, what's the chief character quality of Jacob? It's guile. What was he saying? Well, F.F. F. Bruce paraphrases it this way. Behold, an Israel in whom there's no Jacob. And then at the end of the passage, when Nathaniel has brought this great confession of the identity of Jesus long before Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. Um, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And the Lord says, you, you mean just because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you, you believe that? Uh, you shall see greater things than these. That's the disciples' motto, by the way. He says, just because I said that, you believe it, you shall see. Note the verbs. Jesus says it, we believe it, we shall see it. And he said, you shall see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, where have we seen that language before? We see it in Genesis 28. In the vision that Jacob received, he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on a kind of ladder, a kind of staircase. And what he saw was a pattern or a type of Christ. And what Christ is saying to Nathaniel is, you'll see what Jacob saw. He just saw the shadow. You'll see the substance. You'll see the real thing. And Christian, you will too. You will too. Now, um, I talked a little bit about what we don't mean by an encounter with God. Uh, let, let me talk a little bit now about what we do mean. We mean a time in our lives where we have, where we're blessed with an overwhelming substantiation in more than one way that what we believe by reading, we have confirmed by experience. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, unreasonable or unbiblical to expect our life to be blessed in just that way if we're Christians. Obviously, there are dangers. We don't 
actually have to have anything beyond the Word of God itself. Obviously, there are abuses. They're fanciful and sometimes intentionally um, deceptive claims along these lines. We see that kind of thing all the time. They're charlatans. But just because there's the counterfeit, that doesn't mean we should disdain the possibility of the authentic. And let me just say that when I talk about practical application, um, there's a way practically to move into uh, um, a sphere where this kind of thing is likely to happen. And we see it in the first words of the text I read. Jacob was left alone. One of the great spiritual disciplines that we're taught about is the discipline of solitude. The discipline of getting alone with God. The navigators 30 years ago were kind of preoccupied with uh, teaching the people that they discipled how to spend a day alone with God. It's a lost art. It's a desirable thing. Children, you realize how difficult it is to be alone. And there's so many disruptive challenges that our fathers knew nothing about. We try to get family time. The, greatest, the next to the greatest thing about being um, alone with God is to, is to be together with God as a family. And yet sometimes when we're physically together, because of earbuds, we, in a formal sense, we're alone, but actually we're not alone. And we're not learning and relating to one another. We're learning and relating from uh, somebody who's behind that music or that podcast or that movie whom we don't know and doesn't know our family and doesn't know God, and yet he's making a profound influence on us if for no other reason that that's who we spend most of the time with. And let me just say that if we're going to be alone with God, it's not going to happen inadvertently. We're going to have to plan it. I highly recommend it, especially on the Lord's Day. That some You say there's no time. Is there time to eat? It wouldn't hurt, certainly wouldn't hurt me to skip a meal so that we can be alone with God. Somebody wrote me yesterday and said, can we get lunch? I said, you know, I'm so unbelievably disciplined that I carve out time for lunch almost every day. I think we can do it. Let's schedule it. We schedule time alone with God. Would that be a good thing? Let me just say that uh, next that Jacob's encounter with God is personal. You know, it's, it's, it's very common to have an affiliation with God. We're, we're a member of the church. We have, we have a Christian affiliation. Uh, we may be baptized to secure this affiliation. And uh, Scripture offers much more than that. The covenant offers much more than that. I... Uh, I have a dear, dear friend who's uh, being challenged in his pastorate, and it's been publicized. Two articles in Christianity Today. It's a rather prestigious church. Uh, Paul Revere and Samuel Adams are buried in the cemetery in the churchyard. And because of that, because of the history behind that church, uh, 
what he's going through right now has been highly publicized in the Christian press. And one thing I've tried to, to tell him over and over through the ordeal is keep it vertical. Keep it vertical. In other words, don't focus on your tormentors. Don't focus on their betrayal. Don't focus on their lies. Don't, don't focus on, on what they're doing wrong. Focus on the Lord. Focus on his uh, sponsorship with you. Focus on his sovereign control over every aspect of the situation. So when we say, when I say personal, I also want to say make it vertical. Make something vertical and personal to happen between you and God. I keep going back to, to John 1. I, um, I, told, I promised John I wasn't going to talk about John today because you've been studying John. I'll try to keep it in Genesis 32. But when Jesus said to Nathanael, Behold, an, an, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, he spoke to a situation in Nathanael's life that we don't know anything about. We can only infer what it could have been about because of what Jesus said and what Nathaniel said. But really, the transaction is opaque to us. Uh, maybe Nathaniel had been accused of being a liar or a dishonest person or a person who lived without integrity, a, hypoc a, hy a hypocrite. And maybe he protested in that situation, you got me all wrong, and then he gets the affirmation from the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you don't have any guile in you. And remember the way Nathaniel responds, how do you know me? You know, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because when I, I picked this book up, I can be challenged, you know. I wasn't there when he walked on water. I wasn't there when he called uh, Lazarus out of the grave. But I'm here, and I know the miracle of opening this book and realizing that whoever caused these words to be written knows me, knows me profoundly, knows me perfectly, knows me intimately, knows me better than I know myself, and loves me anyway. And so when we come to Jesus, when Jesus comes to us, there are things that may be opaque to other people. Maybe that we couldn't share, wouldn't know how to share, maybe wouldn't dare share those secrets with another human being. I'm obliged to tell my wife of every transgression since we've been married. But I know of transgressions before we were married that I don't, I don't feel obliged to tell her, and I don't plan to tell her. But we're perfectly known by someone who will pardon those transgressions, will cleanse us from those transgressions and will love us in an undiminished way, even though he knows all of our sins perfectly. If he hadn't known our sins perfectly, he wouldn't have paid such a lavish price to free us from our sins. That's how, that's how bad our sins were. He died death by slow torture, draining his arteries, because I'm that bad but I'm that loved. Come to this uh, passage of Scripture. Uh, one thing we see is confession. 
Now, this is really more significant than it seems. What, uh, what is the confession? Well, um, in verse 26, the angel says, and by the way, let me go ahead and say this now. This is a brief sidebar. Because I told you it was Jesus. I've called him a man because the text calls him a man. So, two fancy words. I don't use these words. Um, they just kind of help us to understand what the deal is here. One word is from philosophy. The other word is from theology. Some of you will know what phenomenological language is. I heard a species of phenomenological language this morning from my wife at 6.13 a.m. <laughs> phenomenological language is the language of appearance. It's not the language of absolute reality. It's the language of perceived sensory, perceived appearance. Now at 6.13 a.m., my wife didn't say to me, come over here to the window, our planet has entered the envelope of its rotation at precisely the time when we can begin to see the light from our nearest star. Now, that's what, it, that's what the phenomenon was, okay? But that's not what she said. She said, hey, there's a beautiful sunrise. That's phenomenological language. It appears that the sun is rising. Is the sun rising? No, the earth is turning. Now, all languages rely on phenomenological language to get the point across. And what we have in the unfolding of this text, I'll tell you what was happening in the very beginning. I'll tell you the end from the beginning. But as the text unfolds, somebody grabs Jacob and as far as the phenomenological appearance goes, in terms of his consciousness, a man has grabbed him. And as far as he knows, it's one of Esau's confederates. It's dark. He doesn't know who it is. He doesn't know what it is. And Moses, as Moses writes, he's letting us know of the growing perception of Jacob. A man has grabbed me in the darkness. And a, a wrestling match ensues. Now, we reach a point where the angel of the Lord says, what is your name? Now, do you think probably that the angel of the Lord knew what his name was? I don't think he was saying, hey, what's your name? I want to make sure I got the right guy. You know, when God asks a question, it's because he wants to teach. When God asked in the garden, where are you? He knew where Adam and Eve were. Um, when Jesus asked a question... In the Gospels, who touched me? He knows the answer. He doesn't ask to learn. He asks to teach. This is called the Socratic method. We find it far, far in advance of Socrates. We actually find it in the Garden of Eden. Now, the angel knew the answer to that question. So why did he ask the question? Well, think about it. It'll be obvious to some of you. Some of you will be surprised. The last time Jacob ask for a blessing, what did he say his name was? Tell me. Esau. And what the angel is saying is, you know, before we proceed with this blessing, uh, I want to make sure I'm blessing the right guy. 
Could we get this right for a change? Isn't it ironic that God, the high and majestic creator God, has, is not ashamed to tie his name to Jacob's name? I mean, let's be honest, by ordinary measures, that ought to be really embarrassing to tie my identity and my reputation to a rogue like Jacob. And yet, ironically, God is not afraid to proclaim himself and to be known as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And let it be known to Rebekah, which I think Jacob also knew that God purposed to bless Jacob, not Esau, and make him the bearer and the transmitter of, of the covenant. And yet, when his father Abraham, his father Isaac asked him who he was, he said, I'm Esau, the rejected son. You see the, the irony of that, how bizarre that is. And yet, that's the way Jacob rolled. That's the way he lived his life. And so what the angel is saying is, okay, now, now what's your name? Let's, can, can we get this straight? And he says, Jacob. So if we're going to have an encounter with God, there's got to be a confession. We've got to tell him who we really are. I, I don't have a great quiet time every day. I'm not like Tommy Nelson. I've missed more than twice in 50 years. But uh, on the day that I have a great quiet time, which is not every day, uh, it usually starts out something like this. Lord, I am your lowest servant. And I am your poorest steward. You know why I say that? Because it's true. And we need to get that out in the open when we have an encounter with somebody who already knows it. There needs to be a confession of who we are and who we aren't. And Jacob has to confess who he really is. Children, when we have an encounter with the Lord and when we confess who we are and who we've always been to him, there is the certainty of change. There is the certainty that we will become somebody that we aren't, someone whom we've never been, and it'll be an upgrade. And this angel, who is the Malach Yahweh, who is the, um, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, he says to him, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Um... Have you ever wrestled with God about anything? How could we possibly prevail in a wrestling match with God? You know, um, I have four grandsons sitting here. And I can remember a couple of specific times when I wrestled with the nine-year-old. And you know what? I lost. And I've got two twin grandsons who are at Harvest Church today. And they're five years old. And I've wrestled with them a few times. Do you know that 100% of the times 
when I have wrestled with my grandsons, I've lost 100% of the time. I stood here a year or two ago, and we talked about the Syrophoenician woman. She had an argument with Jesus, and the only time in the recorded Gospels Jesus lost an argument, she won. Remember, Jesus said, you win. Your daughter's healed. You win. And we taught, we, at, we addressed the question, how could she win an argument with Jesus? And the simple answer was, because he wanted her to win. How could Jacob win a wrestling match with the pre-incarnate Christ, with deity? Because he wanted him to win. He took hold of him because he wanted to bless him. This glorious exchange, I don't, I don't have time to unpack it. I don't have the competence to unpack it, even if I had the time. We'd have to get... John and Josh and Phil Newton and the other elders in here, and maybe uh, after a few days of study, we could come up with some sort of very clear, um, correct explanation of exactly what's going on in this passage that's full of mystery. Let me go for the dawn is breaking? What's that about? Well, I guess he didn't want him to see his face. He could have stopped the dawn from breaking. But he left it in Jacob's hands. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Uh, it's an amazing passage. How was Jacob changed? Well, he was changed because he had a new name. Do you know that you have a new name? Have you ever noticed that in the letters to the seven churches? That one day you're going to be given a, a white stone? One day you're going to be given a new name? That lady right there, when she was about three years old, she said, uh, before I left for the church where I was working in North Carolina, she said, Daddy, when we get to heaven, can I sit on Jesus' throne? I said, no. And she said, not even for a little while? And I said, no. She said, not even for a little girl? I said, Katie, don't ever talk like that. That's Jesus' throne. I got to the church, and I told, shared that exchange with my secretary, who'd been a Christian about eight months. I had baptized her. And she said to me, well, if you said that, you must not know the Bible. And I said, what did you say? She said, if you told your daughter that, you must know, not know the Bible. And I said, what are you talking about? Now, I had memorized Revelation 3.20 because I was discipled by Campus Crusade for Christ. And Revelation 3.20 is the closer verse in uh, law number four, um, which is the verse about Jesus standing at the door and knocking. It's not strictly an evangelistic verse, but Bill Bright used it anyway. It's a pity I hadn't um, memorized the next verse. Because <laughs> the next verse, which my eight-month-old Christian secretary turned to, was Revelation 3.21, which says, 
he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. So I picked up the phone and I called home. My wife answered and I said, let me speak to Katie. So she says, hello. And I say, sweetheart, I got some good news. I got some good news for you, Christian. Because you've had this saving encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you've confessed to him who you really are. Because you've received your blessing from him who you can really become. You got a new name. You got a new destiny. One day you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on him, like Jacob did, and like Nathaniel was promised. And one day you'll sit down with him on his throne. You see, it's just a picture and a pattern. I'll say this, and then we'll be done. I have no idea what time it is, but um, I'm nowhere at Kenan's record, so it's okay. Um, the Old Testament is like a jigsaw puzzle. And when we're kids and we start out working puzzles, which I hate, by the way, there are those, there are those uh, indentations, you know, on the flat board so we'll know where the thing's supposed to fit. And then we get a little bit older and we... We start working adult puzzles, and there aren't any indentations, but we've got a target image. We know what the thing's supposed to look like when we're done. And that helps a lot, doesn't it? Well, in the Old Testament, we have all these puzzle pieces, but the people in the Old Testament did not have a target image. And so, you know, we've got this puzzle of this stranger in the dust with Jacob. We've got, this, we've got this man called Melchizedek, this priest who's also a king, which is not possible in the uh, Levitical arrangement. Um, we've got this amazing thing that happens where God commands Moses to make a uh, a brazen serpent and stick it up on a pole and if people will look to it uh, they'll be healed and we think what is that about that's a violation of the second commandment it's a species of idolatry and it's it's uh, making the serpent the the instrumentality of healing the one who's cursed and so these are all puzzle pieces that um, those who only knew the old covenant, they didn't know how those pieces fit together. They were mystified by them. And they should have been. How could they not be? And all of a sudden, someone... And what's that business about Abraham slaying his son and offering his son as a sacrifice? And all of a sudden, Jesus walks down the hill toward the Jordan River and he answers the question that Isaac asked in Genesis 22. Father, here's the fire, here's the wood, but where's the lamb? And, and John the Baptist says, there he is. There he is, Isaac. There's the target image. 
There's the one that Melchizedek was supposed to remind us of. There's the one that the sacrifice of Isaac was supposed to remind us of. There he is. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. I hope you've met him personally. I hope you've kept it vertical. Something between you and God. Precious as this time is with others, sometimes we're swept into Christian affiliations because of social reasons. I hope you've been changed. If so, you have a glorious connection which will issue into a glorious prospect. One day we'll be there, children. And we'll remember, we often read about it. Now it's happened. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gathering of the saints. We thank you for the appointed means of grace. Corporate worship, putting ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. Baptism, communion, all these ways you invite us to an encounter with you. Father, thank you for pursuing us. It's very likely that the first time we heard the gospel, we didn't believe it. Lord, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for bringing us to this moment where we can sing your praises, pray to you, witness the obedience of others, lift up our prayers together, and know and affirm one more time that there's one God who made heaven and earth. He is the God of Israel, and Jesus Christ is his only begotten Son. Amen.